Too much for Tehran's aroused citizenry to bear. Washington's underestimation of the danger was just part of a larger failure. It had not foreseen the gathering threat to its longtime Cold War ally, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the now-reviled self-exiled Shah. A CIA analysis in August 1978, just six months before Pahlavi fled Iran for good, had concluded that the country is not in a revolutionary or even a pre-revolutionary situation. The capture of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was the first battle in America's war against militant Islam, a conflict that would eventually engage much of the world. Iran's revolution wasn't just a localized power struggle. It had tapped a subterranean ocean of Islamist outrage. For half a century, the tradition-bound peoples of the Middle and Near East owning most of the world's oil resources, had been regarded as little more than valuable pawns in a worldwide competition between capitalist democracy and communist dictatorship. In the Arab states, the United States had thrown its weight behind conservative Sunni regimes, and in Iran behind Pahlavi, who stood as a bulwark against Soviet expansionism in the region. An ignored but growing vision in the Middle East saw little difference between the great powers. Both were infidels, godless exploiters, uprooting centuries of tradition and trampling sacred ground in heedless pursuit of wealth and power. They were twin devils of modernity. The Islamist alternative they foresaw was an old twist on a familiar 20th century theme, totalitarianism rooted in divine revelation. The takeover of the embassy in Tehran offered an early glimpse. It was the first time America would hear itself called the great Satan. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran stood behind high brick walls midway down the city's muscular slope, where the land flattened into miles of low brown slums. Inside the enclosure was a park-like campus, a 27-acre oasis of green in a smoggy world of concrete and brick. Its primary building, the Chancery, a blocks-long structure two tall stories high, looked like a big American high school. Scattered beneath a grove of pine trees behind the chancery were the new concrete consulate buildings, the white ambassador's residence, a smaller residence for the deputy chief of mission, a warehouse, a large commissary, a small office building and motor pool, and a row of four small yellow staff cottages. There were tennis courts, a swimming pool, and a satellite reception center. When the embassy opened more than four decades previously, Tehran had been a different place, more a village than a city. Before the chantry stood a low, decorative wooden fence that allowed an unobstructed view of the beautiful gardens from Takti Jamshid, which was then just a quiet side street paved with cobblestones. In the years since, Tehran itself had grown into a noisy, crowded city. Takti Jamshid's quaint cobblestones had long since been paved and the avenue widened. The embassy's main entrance, Roosevelt Gate, was named after Franklin D. Roosevelt, whose distant cousin, CIA officer Kermit Roosevelt, had helped engineer the 1953 coup d'etat that toppled an elected Iranian government and replaced it with the Shah. At the time, the coup had powerful Iranian backers and was welcomed by many in the country. But today it was seen simply as a tawdry American stunt, another example of cynical CIA meddling in the Third World. By the fall of 1979, in the receding tide of revolution, the old embassy had become a provocation, 
It was moored like an enemy battleship just a stone's throw from the street. The walls were covered with insults and revolutionary slogans and were topped by three feet of curved and pointed steel bars. A few days earlier, a band of young men had sneaked into the compound and were caught shinning up the big pole in front of the chancery to take down the American flag. The Marines had since greased the pole. As a defense against rocks and an occasional gunshot from passing motorists, all of the windows facing front had been layered with bulletproof plastic panels and sandbags. The chancery looked like a fort. While the Americans inside saw these changes as purely defensive, the picture they presented strongly encouraged suspicion. Surely the architects of evil behind those walls were plotting day and night. Why was no one stopping them? A big demonstration was already in the works that morning, which had been proclaimed National Students' Day in honor of collegiate protesters who had been gunned down by the Shah's police the year before. There would be thousands of people in the streets. Hashemi and the others planned to launch their surprise from inside this larger crowd. Standing before a crowded room, he explained that the assaulters would be divided into five groups, one for each of the embassy's larger buildings. The initial thrust would be through Roosevelt Gate. Local police would not interfere. Their support had been quietly enlisted. But there was no telling what the Americans would do. If they opened fire, then the bodies of those martyred in the vanguard would be passed out to the crowd and carried aloft through the streets, sure to incite rage. The plan had been hatched by a dozen young Islamist activists, representatives from each of Tehran's major universities, who had formed just weeks before a group that called itself Muslim Students Following the Imam's Line, to differentiate itself from factions with agendas that varied from the teachings of Imam Rohullah Khomeini. Hashemi was the son of an Isfahan cleric and had been raised in the devout traditions of Shia Islam. All men in the Islamic organizations called each other brother, but Hashemi was part of a smaller, militant inner circle called the Brethren, brothers who were more brothers than others. They were armed at all times and had connections with the powerful clergy and with high-ranking officials in the police and the provisional government who had sympathy for their political agenda. The plan was that they would storm the hated U.S. Embassy, a symbol of Western imperial domination of Iran, occupy it for three days, and from it issue a series of communiques that would explain Iran's grievances against America, the overthrow of Mohammad Mossadegh in 1953, and decades of support for the Shah, now a wanted man in Iran accused of looting the nation's treasure and torturing and killing thousands. America's imperialist designs had not ended when the Shah fled Iran the previous February. The criminal tyrant had recently been allowed to fly to America on the pretense of needing medical treatment and was being sheltered there with his stolen fortune. A clandestine meeting in Algiers between secular members of the provisional government and White House National Security Advisors Abignu Brzezinski had been revealed to dramatic effect in Tehran. All of it added up to only one thing in the students' eyes. America was determined to hang on to its colony and restore the Shah to his throne. Seizing the embassy would stop the American plot in its tracks. The revolution was shaping up as a struggle between leftist nationalists who wanted a secular, socialist-style democracy and young Islamists like these who wanted something the world had not yet seen, an Islamic republic. To the devout, 
Allah was alive in the world and so was Satan, working with superhuman powers of deception and ruthless application of force. Only one superpower fit that description, and that was the godless, mercantile, devious monster known as the United States of America. These young Islamic activists were among the brightest of their generation. Competition for places at Tehran's universities was fierce. But few were well-traveled or well-read. It was easy for them to see the U.S. Embassy behind its high walls as quite simply and literally the source of all evil. They would need about 400 students to carry out the assault and thousands more to rally and support outside the embassy walls. Preparations were made to feed the occupiers and the hostages for three days. To make clear their affiliation on the day of the action, they formed a committee to copy a photograph of their inspiration, the white-bearded brooding imam, and prepare plastic-covered placards that would be hung around their necks on a length of string. Muslim students following the imam's line was written on each photo, and armbands were made with the slogan, Allahu Akbar, God is great and featuring a picture of the imam. This would also help them recognize one another in the confusion of the first hours. Four of the student leaders had called on Musavi Koeniha, a young black-bearded radical cleric whose preaching they admired. A slight man who spoke softly outside the pulpit, Koeniha was considerably to the left of the conservative mullah establishment. Koeniha immediately endorsed the idea of the takeover. He agreed with the planners that the devilish practices inside the U.S. Embassy needed to be derailed, and that its emerging secret ties with the provisional government needed to be broken. The young cleric saw clearly that seizing the American Embassy would also put great pressure on Prime Minister Barzigan and his government.